The most dangerous place you can be as a trial lawyer is to think you've got it figured out. I'm still trying to get better. I still have the passion for it. I believe in it. Everyone can learn to do what I do. And yet there's a group here that continues to get extraordinary verdicts. Trial Lawyers University is revolutionizing educating lawyers to be better trial lawyers. It's been invaluable to me. Trial Lawyers University, where the titans come to train. Produced and powered by LawPods. Good morning, every. Oh, actually, good day. But we're here with Mark Kozarotsky, and Mark just got back from a big trip in Europe. He had to miss TLU New York City for it. Well, I hope it was worth it, Mark. It was, but I'm happy to be here with you now. All right. Thank God you made it back stateside, back to Minnesota. So Mark has been participating with Trial Lawyers University really since the beginning. We started doing the webinars, and then he was at TLU 2021. Unfortunately, he was traveling again in 2022, but He'll be back for 2024, at least in Huntington Beach. He's still planning his October vacation, so we're trying to get them plan around October 16th through 19th, Caesars Palace, but that may or may not happen. We're going to try to impress him in Huntington Beach. So he's like, okay, I was going to be in Europe, but I got to be in Vegas for 2024. That's the goal. So Mark, you are in the process of writing your fourth book now. Is that right? That's correct. And what is that fourth book about? That book is about litigation obstruction. One of the things that has driven me crazy throughout my career is the nonsense, the obstruction nonsense. And so I started developing tools to deal with it. And now I'm capturing them all in a book to empower other people to um, stop the nonsense. Can you give us maybe like a thumbnail sketch of some of these obstructionist things that defense attorneys who lack proper decorum participate in and the solutions to hold them accountable for their gamesmanship? Sure. Well, I mean, most people have come to believe that written discovery is worthless because no matter what you ask for, who are the witnesses, objection, vague, overbroad, not proportional, will not lead to admissible evidence Martians have the information and it violates the rule against perpetuities. And they just object to everything, every single thing there is. What most lawyers don't understand is Rule 26G of the federal rules, which has been adopted by a lot of states. And my book will identify which states do and which states don't. That's the rule that says you got to sign your discovery request. And you got to sign the response. And that lawyer's signature is a verification, just like Rule 11, that says a complete search has been conducted. We are producing everything that we have unless it's an objectionable. And if it's objectionable, that objection is based in law and fact. And if that signature is improper, Rule 26G says that sanctions against the lawyer and the party, if they're involved, is mandatory. So when you say improper, what do you mean if that verification is improper? If it's a boilerplate objection and the objection has no basis in law or fact, for example, overbroad, but they don't say why it's overbroad. And you're asking, who are the witnesses that you know about? Clearly not overbroad. That's a boilerplate objection. If they give the same objection for every single answer, 
without stopping and thinking about it, that's an improper objection. There's a case called Mancia versus Mayflower out of Maryland that says that boilerplate objections are prima facie evidence of a violation of 26G making sanctions mandatory. When are you expecting to be published? I think as you said, by, I don't know you say, it, but I know it's by AAJ Press, correct? I was hoping to have it done by the end of the year, but like the 30B6, my 30B6 book, it just keeps growing and getting more robust. But now that I have committed to Huntington Beach, it will be done for Huntington Beach. Great. And then you can bring a whole bunch of copies so that when people see your presentation on this topic, they can get the deeper dive by purchasing the book and supporting the yeah. American Association of Justice. Correct? Is that right? Yeah, it's being published by AAJ Press, and a part of the book is already available, and this is pretty cool. One of the things about litigation obstruction is, is you got to meet and confer with the lawyers, and it's just fill you with nonsense, and people send these emails back and forth, and they're doing Venn diagrams and charts and graphs to keep track of all this, and they just want to pull their hair out and just, it's not worth it. And the judges are mad at us. Well, the reasons the judges are mad is by the time you get to the judge, you're so pissed off that it's just about, I want sanctions, this guy's a jerk, you know, and it's just like children fighting. What I've done is I've developed a template. It took four years to get it done, but it's a template that is linked to Access, which is part of the Microsoft Office. And what that does is it organizes all of the requests and the relevance, and the lawyer has to input that. But then once you've established what the relevance is, you just click buttons for every objection, and it populates a spreadsheet with all the nonsense objection. One request, 10. Second request, 10. And then it has the law, uh, the short law, the two-sentence law linked to why the objection is improper, and a link to a standard brief that gives all the law for the court. So then you print out this spreadsheet and the final column is just overruled or sustained. So the judge sees the entire thing and all they gotta do is check, overruled, 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 overruled. But it requires a serious meet and confer process. So we have a timesheet that comes with it so you can keep track of it so you can show the judge, hey, look, I'm trying. I'm trying to be an adult here. And what we've been finding is, we just did this two weeks ago, every objection withdrawn the day before the hearing, but we already have authority that says, once you've done it, that's sanctionable. Uh, case settled the day of the hearing. Had another one where there were 308 objections and it was reduced to eight objections by the defense lawyer, just recognizing that it's just, like Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. These people are serious. You get a 20-page spreadsheet and just and all the nonsense jumps off the page, and you can even give them the brief with draft written across it and say, look, here's the law. If I'm wrong on the law, tell me. You know, let's work this out. And you know what? Scares the dog droppings out of them. No, that's great, because that would... Uh... Because I know how much people... And that's available already. Where is it available at? How do you get it? AAJ Press. It's called Stonewall Solutions. 
And it's like a litigation package. It's got the brief and the meet and confer letters and the spreadsheets. And then it's got the template for the software that you can use to manage all this stuff. And my book is going to be hundreds of pages of a really deep, deep dive into the law for each one of these things. So lawyers can be empowered to stand up to these obstructionists who I think there was a case out of Florida that says litigation bullies who are masquerading as lawyers. They do slow the process down in our justice system. We can't have that, Mark. What what this does is it takes 40 hours of meet and confer work and cuts it down to two to three hours. And it makes you look good. And it tells a defense lawyer, damn, (laughs) these guys are serious. Yeah. I'm so impressed the fact that, like, because I know how much work it takes. I don't know personally, but I can only imagine the kind of work it takes to write a book. And this isn't your first book. Most lawyers are, if they're really an intellectual of some type or like really have something to share, they might write one book in their career. But this is your fourth one on truly like four kind of distinct topics because you got one on. So what was the, your first one was 30B6. Is that correct? That's correct. 30B6, Deposing Corporations, Organizations, and the Government, and that's published by Trial Guides. And when did you publish that one? Well, the first time it came out in 2015. And I don't know if there's any correlation with this or not, but after the book came out, plaintiff's lawyers started using it like crazy and going, damn, this thing really works. And next thing you know, the defense industry is trying to abolish the rule. And so for the next five years, there were hearings, and I testified before the Rules Committee twice on this. The Rules Committee said, we're not going to abolish this rule. This is a good rule. But they made a small change that says we need to meet and confer on before we serve it, which I do anyway. And as a result, all the things I learned through the Rules Committee hearings and the problems I was encountering along the way I wrote a second edition in 2020 that updated the old book to cover all of the information that I learned from the the Rules Committee hearings. You say Rules Committee. What Rules Committee is this? The Federal Rules Committee of the U.S. Supreme Court. All right. Well, I didn't know that. You know, some people may not know that. You're talking about the Federal Rules Committee of the U.S. Supreme Court. When you read the rules and you have the rule at the end, they say the Advisory Committee note. The advisory committee is a committee that was appointed by the Supreme Court of judges and lawyers who then study any rule change there is. And then once they have hearings on it, they have a request for public comment. And then what they do is they have the comment explaining what the rule change is. Got it. And then you wrote a book on deposition obstruction. I did. And that's available through trial guides too? Well, that one's an AAJ press book. All right. And that book is basically the rules of engagement of depositions. Nobody teaches you diddly about depositions in law school. And frankly, a lot of lawyers. Wait, hold on, Mark. I don't think you needed to put about depositions. I think nobody teaches you diddly in law school would be a good blanket statement for the actual practice of law. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, 30B6, every time I have a law clerk, I have them bring in their civil procedure book. The longest I've ever seen in any book is a page and a half on 30B6 
and most of them are a half a page. My book is 500 pages long and 900 footnotes. Nobody knows what it is. It's the most powerful tool we have against organizations. Can't use it against individuals, but anything that's an organization, this thing is a nuclear, thermonuclear bomb. You cut out the middleman. You just get to the truth by talking to the witnesses. And then you have another book on a different subject, which is nursing homes. Yeah, that's um, about 20 years ago, I stumbled into the nursing home practice and trial guides, you know, I've been doing the majority of the work our firm does is nursing home, assisted living, elder abuse, or abuse in like vulnerable adults is a better word, and vulnerable children. Well, trial guides really wanted a book on nursing home. So my partner, Joel Smith, and I put together a book that basically walks a lawyer through what nursing home cases look like. You need the other books for doing the discovery, but the nursing home book tells you what does a nursing home case look like. It's a pressure sore or a fall or a mismedication or a rape. And then what kind of discovery do you need to do on that? It doesn't get into the procedure of the rules. It talks about philosophically what these cases are about. So, Mark, I want to kind of go back in time now a little bit with you. And do you just turn 70 years old? Is that correct? Or your birthday's coming up? One of the two. Well, I'm going to be actually I'm going to be 71 in January. Oh, OK. So you got another birthday coming up. Yeah. But uh, how did you decide to become a lawyer? Because I my dad and my brothers and my sisters were all lawyers. So me, it was like, I don't know what else I'm going to do except keep going to school. There was no like pressing, like uh, there was no epiphany I had, or I wasn't in the third grade said, I'm going to be a lawyer. I just kept going to school. But how, what was your journey there? My story is not quite as pure as yours. My parents were Eastern European immigrants. They fought in the war. They couldn't go back to Poland and they immigrated to the U.S., and education was everything for them because that's all they brought with them and an accordion. And they uh, drilled into my head for education. But as Eastern European parents, my son, the doctor, and they really wanted to be a doctor. And the message that I got is you had two choices in life, be a doctor or a failure. I opted for the latter. And Basically, I didn't get into med school because I didn't really like it. So the application process was really clear. This wasn't for me. Kept getting pushed, pushed at home. So I worked on a master's for a year in neuropsych. And I said, I hate this stuff. And I'm not going to let them do this to me. But being a professional was the second best thing, way down the line, but second best thing. So I applied to law school just to do it. And when I was there, I started winning these mock trial competitions. So I kind of gravitated into being a trial lawyer. And so when you finished law school and after you get take the bar, tell us a little bit about your journey from your first paycheck to you know, where you're sitting today as the most prolific author of trial knowledge out there, honestly, for sure. So tell us about that trip. Well, I went to a school in central Iowa. I wanted to move to Minneapolis for the usual reason, following a girl. Still <laughs> following her that to Europe now on a regular basis. Ago. And still with her. That's right. 
And, you know, Minneapolis is a pretty tight market. So I found a job clerking for a judge in law school in Minneapolis. It was actually a very well-known judge, uh, Miles Lord, who was responsible for the manual over complex litigation, asbestos, things like that. And that was in law school. And then right after law school, I got a job with a state court judge making 15000 a year. That's what lawyers made back then. But this is, what, 45 years ago, right? So we're talking... Yeah, you could buy a car for $2,000 back then. Right. The 70s. So I clerked for a year, and I made sure that every lawyer that appeared in that courtroom had to go through me first. So they got to know who I was. And then there was this decision, you know, I'm trying to even remember what it was now, but it it was pretty clear that the law clerk wrote it because it wasn't exactly compatible with what they expected the judge to have gotten. He was a very conservative judge. Miles Lord was the most liberal judge in America. Urban Steinman was possibly the most conservative. But I wrote this decision and the law firm saw my role in it. So they asked me to apply. And I applied and got a job. And it was a large volume plaintiff's firm that did everything from car wrecks and dog bites to construction and products liability. But it was a high volume firm. I joined that firm and I had 40 cases thrown at me. I had no idea what I was doing. And, and the files were on fire because it, you know, they had too many cases. So every time the phone rang, my stomach would burn. I'd start to sweat because I knew it would be some pissed off client. And so I started learning by fire. Probably not the best way to learn, okay? This is why TLU is such a great service because I learned by what the defense lawyers were doing to me. I'm thinking that's what you're supposed to do. And at the same time, I have no idea if I'm doing the right thing. So, you know, I'm just cranking around and I'm basically an insurance adjuster at this point, just trying to get this stuff done with this passionate dream of going home every night without screwing up. I mean, that was basically it. So then comes, I might've been a year and a half, two years into the practice, Senior partner says, I got this wrongful death case going to trial next week. It's a piece of shit. I want you to go up there, settle it for $1,000 and come on home. So you're mad, wrongful death case, death of a child. And it was a bad case. I mean, there was a truck stolen from a used car lot. Two days later, it was stolen from the thief at a kegger. Thief won and some other kids who hop into the back of Thief One's truck get into a high-speed chase, and there's a wreck, and the kid gets killed, just the passenger in the back of the truck. So the senior partner had sued everybody, including the owner of the car, for allowing the car to be stolen. And he said, eh, not very good case. So get $1,000 and come back. And they, So I go up there. I got $1,000. And they said, we're not taking it. What do you mean? I got, here's the money. We're done. $1,000. No, get out of here. You know, we want the expenses. So, you know, I call up the partner and says, they won't take the money. He goes, try it. Click. And just hung up the phone. Wait, you were trying to give them $1,000 or you were trying to get $1,000? I was trying to get 1000 But who wouldn't take it, the defense or your clients? The defense wouldn't pay it. That's how bad a case it was. 
I got it. All right. I don't even know where to stand. I have no idea. I mean, I watched some trials when I was clerking, but, you know, most of that was motion practice. And the lawyers I watched try cases, they were not world-class lawyers. Let's just say they hadn't done any training. Yeah. They hadn't been at TLU. It wasn't a calling for them. It was more of a job. I have to go try this case, unfortunately. Not like I can't wait to get to trial. So I have no idea what I'm doing. I mean, you know, like the strikes came to me first, and I just checked two. And just handed them back to him. I had no idea I was going back and forth. You know, I just, it was malpractice to send me up there, okay? So I tried the case and um, was pretty sincere, including telling the jury, this is the first time I've ever done this. And out of maybe sheer luck, I got the biggest verdict in the history of the state for the death of a child, not knowing where to stand. That launched my career. How much was it? It was 400,000 back then. And at the time, 100 was the biggest verdict ever. Wow. I mean, that's 43 years ago. And this was against a used car lot for allowing the car to be stolen. That kind of had people notice me. Launched your career, I bet. Yeah, it did launch my career. So all of a sudden, cases started coming in. And I get this about... Three years later, a woman comes in and says, I'm interviewing lawyers, and you're on the short list. And your senior partner is, too. This kind of puts me in a tough spot. This is a big rep where a, a young man was brain injured and was in a persistent vegetative state. And so she'd heard about my verdict, asked me, why should I hire you instead of your boss? I said, my boss is going to do a great job. I mean, he's a great lawyer. But if you hire him, I'm going to do the work anyway. And if you hire me, this is the most important thing in my life for the next two years. And she thought I was sincere. I took it. I worked the case up and got the biggest settlement of the case on the first day of trial in the history of state by half a million dollars. Um, and, you know, then numbers is nothing compared to what it is back then. I mean, we're getting verdicts like that now. But back then, there hadn't been anything like that. I mean, there'd never been a multi-million dollar verdict in Minnesota. And the biggest settlement ever had been like $2.5 And so I beat that. You got to settle for $3 million? 3.3. Wow. Back then? Yeah, that was 43. That'd be like $10 million in today's dollars or more. It's hard to say. Probably more. I always had to do those comparison maths. So anyway, all of a sudden, you know, things are happening and cases are coming in and I get thrown into trial lawyer politics, start going through the chairs and I become, you know, and I'm trying cases like back and forth like crazy. So then two years later, I get a call from a lawyer in Seattle says, I need a co-counsel on a civil rights um, wrongful death combination case where a Native American woman was, you know, drinking and driving, which she shouldn't do. She was 27 weeks pregnant and got picked up. And they put her in jail and they started delivering the baby. They wouldn't give her a doctor. That was one of the forays in e-discovery where we got a download from a fax machine on it. And we tried that civil rights case for six weeks they offered it, it was for the death of a fetus or a 
week-old baby. So that my job was to prove that this baby would have survived at 27 weeks. They could have had an abortion a week earlier. We tried the civil rights case for six weeks. Brutal. They offered us $30,000. And we got a $1.3 million verdict on that. So now, you know, things are going. But more important than the verdict is, it was the first case to apply 1983 to a detainee, which is Guantanamo Bay was based on. And we had regulations that maybe we had something to do with it, maybe we didn't, but they followed our case to say this crazy idea that women delivering in babies in jails should get a doctor. And now there are regulations that say, give a woman a doctor. And that didn't exist 40 years ago. There's a book chapter written about that trial. That was probably the most important trial in my case, or my life. Not the biggest, but the most important. And so then it just kept going and going, and people started asking me to teach and teach my ideas. And, you know, and I never really feel comfortable about saying, well, this is what I do. I'd rather say, here are the tools. Here's what the law is. And you don't need to be pushed around. You can use the technique any way you want. This is what I use, but it's always got to be based in some kind of legal framework. And so it just kept going and kept going. And then I started putting the information in books and you asked me to talk about them. So when did you start your own firm? You had this journey with this firm and you were getting results, but when did yeah. you decide, hey, you know what? Today's the day, time to start. What's the name of your firm? Kosharatsky Smith Law Firm in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Time to start Kosharatsky Smith. When was it? Tell us about, you know, when that happened and how that happened. Cause that's always a big move, big decision. I was the heir to the throne at the big firm. And you know, it was a good firm. They did lots of good stuff. They did a lot of small cases, but they did a lot of really important big cases. And I was doing all of their construction site injury litigation at the end. But at one point, I just said, I need to do my own thing. I can't work within this structure where I have to report all these things. I want to handle the cases I want. And one of the things I wanted is to be able to spend the time to really ramp up the intellectual and philosophical way I was going to handle a case, as opposed to just flying in there and just talking and doing stuff. I had some losses along the way too, so don't get me wrong. I had some tear-jerking losses, but I learned from them. That's where you learn. And one day I just decided I'm just not happy having to work within this structure. And my wife said, you know, you're going to have to go. I said, we're not going to have any money. So you're going to have to do it. And I didn't do the midnight footlight to Brazil or anything like that. I didn't do the Friday night having all the lot stuff set up. I came in on Monday morning and said, I have to do my own thing. And they wanted me to stay and they were good. And they really made me offers that were really fair and very kind. But I had this emotional need to do my own thing. So I started my own firm. And what year did you start your own firm? Well, let's see. I, I started in 70, 1980. So it would have been 87. I was president of the trial lawyers. I think it was like 84, the year of Newt Gingrich. And then a few years later, I started, just went out on my own. 
And then after a year or two, my partner today, I'd like to work on some cases with you. And I said, why would I do that? I've had partners before. I don't want it. Says, let's just co-counsel on cases. So we co-counseled. Before I said I wanted to do it, he said, you're going to make me a better lawyer, but I'm going to make you a better lawyer also. <laughs> sure. But, you know, I got some help. And he did. He made me a much better lawyer. We were like Fred and Ginger. He's a fabulous lawyer. We're great friends, but very different personalities. He's a little quieter. I'm a little bit louder. And, and we teamed together and started trying cases together. And I said, look it. We've been dating now for three or four years. We're either going to be partners or we're not. And so I said, sure, I'd love to be your partner. You know, you're the rainmaker. What do you think of a 60-40 split in ownership? And I said, no way. I'm not even going to dream of that. It's 50-50 or I'm not doing it. He goes, you just gave up 20%, Mark. Why are you doing that? I said, because we're going to either be partners or we're not going to be partners. Because if I've got 51%, I'm the dictator. And this is like a marriage. You have to work. You have to both buy in. And we've been together for as partners for 20 years now. And it's the greatest partner you could ever have. And it's because we had the respect for each other that we were equal partners. We've never disagreed on a decision ever. We've discussed everything. And we were able to start to really elevate our practice of law once we started doing that. Well, how come you never bring Mr. Smith to uh, conferences? He's not social? Is, what's your partner's name, Robert Smith? No, Joel Smith. Joel Smith. Joel, how come Joel never comes to conferences? Does he ever come to conferences with you? He goes to them occasionally, but he doesn't <laughs> love them. Well, he should come to Huntington Beach. I think he'll change his perspective on it. So you see, you see if he wants to come... I know he, he tries a lot of cases. You tell me he's very prolific in the trial thing. So if you want to come talk about some of the results he's got. I mean, he's a great lawyer. We tried seven jury trials last year. That's what I'm saying. That's a lot of trials. He's working. Yeah. While you're in Sardinia bicycling, he's working his ass off. <laughs> That's the kind of partners we need. <laughs> like, anyways, so you guys have been together for 20 years now, and it's working great. As partner. We dated for years before. That's good. You got to have that, that little uh, pre-partnership dance because partnerships are tough and keep the balance right. What everybody's contributions are and compensation compared to contributions is always challenging to say the least. Well, right. I mean, you know, if you're, you're a big firm, sure, you're going to divide up the stocks. But if you're just two people, you're either partners or you're not. I mean, that's what we decided. And there's never been a case where... He hasn't had my back or I haven't had his back, ever. That's a rare thing. Mark, let me switch gears a little bit. You've been a lawyer now for a long time, and you know a lot of great lawyers around the country. And so my question is, what do you think the top three qualities or character traits of like a great trial lawyer are? Well, I think there are some characteristics that might be a little different than other people say, but I think there's three kind of give you thoughts on all of them. Curiosity, being an analyst, and having courage. Curiosity is the most important thing. You have to be curious and understand what's going on. Why do these rules and these laws say what they do? What really happened in this event that gave rise to a lawsuit? Why are the witnesses saying what they're saying? 
And you got to care. It's not just check it off, check it off, check it off. You really got to be curious and intellectually curious and really want to know. So that's important. I think it's the single most important trait for success in anything. Being an analyst, a chess player, not a checkers player, thinking about what the case is. I think the hardest part about being a trial lawyer is the analysis, trying to figure out not only why does your case fit into this box, but what is the defense's case and what is the defense doing and try to understand that defense and analyze it and then design your case in a way to prove your case, but also neutralize their case. So you're an analyst. And the final one is courage. And you know, I have this sign up in my office. It's from the old Greek philosopher Thucydides. The bravest are surely those who have the clearest vision of what is before them, glory and danger alike, and yet notwithstanding, go out to meet it. That's the courage you need. So those are the three traits that I think are important. I would uh, like asking this question because of the variety of answers and like courage often comes up because taking on a big case, you're stepping into the unknown. You're, you're risking your money. You're risking your reputation and a lot of your time. And you know, especially some of the more like that Native American birth injury or 1983 case. So many of these lawyers and you're like Josh Koskoff, you know, Josh Koskoff out of taking on the gun manufacturer, but taking on Alex Jones. I mean, like, especially the gun thing. I mean, like that. I mean, I was reading the New York Times article about him and saying, God, this is fabulous. I mean, he's got it all. He's curious. He's an analyst. He figured out the approach and he's brave because taking on the gun industry is no small deal. No small deal at all. In fact, I would say it's a really big deal. It's a huge deal. Huge deal. Huge. Like that, that's the kind of things are crazy. Crazy lawsuits there. You know, people suing the Iraq for these terrorist things or Iran or whoever the hell they're suing in the international criminal courts or whatever they're like, they're doing such stuff at such a different level. It's crazy compared to what most people do, but still such courageousness. So you remember my nephew, Harrison Shields? Harrison, I don't know if you remember meeting him, but anyways, he just took the bar exam. He's waiting for his results. He's got until November 9th, but he just sat through his first jury trial because they're waiting on a verdict right now with over with, because he works for one of my buddies, Mike Sanchez. But if he, at TLU, let's say in Huntington Beach, he comes up to you and says, Mr. Kozarowski, and of course you'd be like, call me Mark. You'd be like, Mark, one day I want to be a great trial lawyer. Kaz. Kaz, I'm on my way, Kaz. But my uncle's been giving me a lot of advice on what I should do, but you know, he's so young. You're so much more seasoned than he is. So- and you're, you know, a famous trial lawyer. So what would you say, I need some advice. Tell me what I need to do to become the best I could be. In fact, one day I'm going to be the greatest trial lawyer, but I got to start on the right track. So what advice do you give a young person who's just waiting for the bar results and wants to become a trial lawyer? Well, one of the things to start with kind of flies in the face of what a lot of trial lawyers say. Trial is theater. If that's what you think it is, go join a theater company. Because theater is just the frosting on the cake. And I learned this the hard way. I hired a consultant on this death case. I was taught 
all these tricks and sustained inflections and the pause and the right suit. And the closing argument was great. I had jurors crying. And then I lost the case. And I'm talking to them, and they say, so tell me what you think. Said, God, you are a great lawyer. You really had us going. Too bad you didn't have a case. I had the theater down, but it was nothing but empty rhetoric. And I learned that the single most important thing for any trial is evidence. Without evidence, you're SOL. And so you got to get it. And one of the things that a lot of lawyers say when I talk about the rules of civil procedures is, well, I'm a trial lawyer. I don't need to know that. I respectfully disagree. I think it's critical to know the rules of engagement, the rules of discovery, the rules of evidence, and the rules of ethics. Understand them. Know what these rules are. But it's more than just knowing the words and the rules. Number one, learn the rules. But number two, understand the principles underlying those rules. Because if you're a checklist lawyer and things get off the checklist or the form, then you don't know what to do. So you need to understand the principles underlying everything. And that's what my books are for, to empower people to not only know the rule, but understanding the philosophy underlying them. And so if you do those two things, you're going to get the evidence. And with that, those give you the tools that enable you to believe in yourself, truly believe in yourself and believe in your case. You know, there's one thing about being cocky and kind of a smart aleck and say, I'm right on everything. But Oscar Wilde wrote, I'm not young enough to know everything. So if you know everything and you know what you're doing and when people start threatening you, you can say, well, just let someone else decide because you know the rules. You don't have to engage in this alpha warrior thing. You got to be a chess master. Yeah. Think it through. And if people take the time to learn the rules of engagement, understand them, and then apply them and get the evidence, and use the tools to compel their adversaries to produce the evidence that they're supposed to, taking the, the high ground, now they can go to trial, they can sincerely present it, and if they learn the theater tricks, that can help. But I mean, if you look at the work of Rick Friedman, he's just all sincerity. I learned these principles from him. I mean, he's one of the greatest lawyers ever. So I would encourage the new lawyers to put in the effort, study, go to TLU, read the books, apply them, then come back and try again, because they're going to get wisdom. And the way you get wisdom is that's what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. And then you turn around and try it again. With that, they can be powerful. I agree with you because I'm working on getting into the courtroom myself a little more frequently these days because I've, I've got a lot of uh, study and now I got to put some application to it. But, you know, the rules of civil procedure and stuff like that are critical to know the rules because I've been trying to figure this out myself now for about 10 years. Because ever since I came out to Vegas to watch my friend Nick Rowley present for the Consumers Attorneys of Los Angeles, I'm like, OK, I need to become a civil trial lawyer. 
because it looks like a lot more fun than what I've been doing and potentially hopefully a lot more profitable because <laughs> being a criminal defense lawyer is a tough way to make a living. And Nick is fabulous. <laughs> I mean, he's great. Yeah, he is great. And so I came out here to Vegas and I saw all these great lawyers and the life they had. And I'm like, I want this for myself. But at 45 years old, it's kind of late in the game to get started and try to figure out how to reinvent yourself. So like since then, I've been trying no, to- it's not. I'm about my age when I started my firm. True, but nobody's really going to mentor me is what I'm saying. And I'm not going to go get a job at a law firm as a new associate. This is not going to happen. And so I've been trying to figure this out for some 10 years. And you know, I really got a break for the pandemic because I got to sit around and study the greatest trial lawyers in the whole country. And how are they getting these verdicts? Because how do they get these big verdicts consistently? You know, like the Panishes, the Raleigh's, the Mitnicks. And what I recognize is you need three things to get big verdicts. Number one, you need the evidence, like you said. This isn't Trump world. You've got to have facts. You've got to have a case. You've got to have a good case if you want to get a big verdict. And then after you have that good case, now you have to have trial strategy, which means like if you've got a 500 pieces of evidence, you've got to figure out which hundred does the jury need to see and in which sequence, you know, how to structure that opening statement, how to structure that cross, how to structure which visuals to bring. The analysis. The analysis. You've got to like think through it. And this is critical. And that takes a lot of experience. And, you know, we go to conferences to learn strategy. We hire consultants, some maybe like yours, weren't <laughs> as helpful as you thought, but they were because it helped you clarify what it is. But the third thing that I see that every great trial lawyer does is that they really focus on their connection with the jury. That after they got the evidence, when they get to court, it's all about what does the jury need? Focus on that jury, mindful of the connection, cutting out information, cutting out questioning, because they believe the jury's got it. Everybody has different sets of abilities to do that. Some are better connectors than others. Like Nick, he's a great connector. He really focuses on his eye contact and his use of his voice. Right. The theatrical part, you'd call it. I don't really call it theater. I call it connection. I think there's a big difference. Yeah. Right. And so many lawyers are so just so bad at connection. I mean, even when they're speaking to other trial lawyers, they just go too fast. They're not making any eye contact. They, they use visuals, but they don't look at the visuals. They just have it up there as a distraction. Just so many things that they do to break connection. And for the people at the top, it's all about the connection. Because you know, when it comes down to a trial, it's whoever the jury wants to win is going to win, right? Despite the evidence. And so that's what I, like the program I've kind of developed where I teach it you know, once a month out here in Vegas or at law firms is all about the nonverbals. Because everybody talks about how important nonverbal communication is. I just looked it up just for curiosity, but... Somebody wrote something like 93% is nonverbal. Like it's only 7% is the words. Like they said, like 26% is your voice, tone, pacing, inflection. But the rest of it is the eye contact, the facial expressions, the hand movements, things that fall into the nonverbals. So that's why, but it takes practice to practice, to get good at nonverbals and be aware of them so that when they were doing things, because you have to practice this stuff so much that when you're up there under the pressure of trial, that you're not thinking about it, right? You control your facial expressions so that way, you know, you want the jury to smile at you. You constantly have a warm face towards them whenever appropriate. When you say good morning, you're not saying good morning, everybody. Like, this is going to suck, but we're all stuck here together. It's like, good morning. This is going to be great. You know what I mean? The, the nonverbal of the warmth of your face. It's all about connection, though. But here's something I'll ch challenge people on. When you meet someone at a party or at a dinner party, it's not about theater. It's about connecting with them as humans. And that's where I disagree with the theater stuff. This is, use the 
the word spot on. It's about connection, looking at people, talking to them, wanting to understand what they want to understand, not throwing a bunch of nonsense at them. So I think of it more as trying to meet someone and how to connect with them. It doesn't matter if you're out in the lobby of a conference or a dinner party or anywhere else where the theater is artificial. You're back here by yourself and you're putting on a show. And what really changed my thinking about this was the book um, 12 Heroes by Carl Bettinger. And it's about hero-centric storytelling and understanding how to connect with people. And that's Raleigh's book, Trial by Human. Same thing. It's not being on a stage by yourself. It's trying to understand that you're trying to communicate with these people. And Carl Bettinger says that they are the heroes of the story. We're not the hero. The client isn't the hero. The jury is the hero who's going to try to make the world safer by their verdict. And for anyone who hasn't read Carl's book, I highly, highly encourage it. Great point. Let me ask you this, Mark. So the last time you were at a TLU event was 2021. And so it have been, by then, it'd be about two and a half years. I just want you to know, I think we've evolved a lot since you were here with how we do Pretty the whole great program. When it was there. Yeah, but this time is going to be so great because the format is on Wednesday, June 5th, is just workshops. So that way it's a smaller group and it's, you know, the interactive workshop with like five to 10 people per group. And then on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, it's both workshops and lectures. And so that way there's seven workshops going on simultaneously with four lecture tracks. And it's on the ocean. I really prefer the ocean over the casino in Vegas, personally, even though I live here now. I'm with you. And we got great food, great food. We didn't have great food at the first TLU because- I wasn't very good at getting sponsors to contribute because like food at hotels is pretty pricey. But this hotel, this will be the third year we've done it. This hotel says so at the Pasea in Huntington Beach, every room has an oceanfront view and a balcony, fantastic food and really fun theme parties every night too. Not just one time. So anyways, you're going to see a big improvement. I think you're really going to like it a lot. And hopefully, you know, if your wife wants to come with you, hope she will. It's just great she fun. She says too. she's coming. All right. It's great fun. And besides yourself, we have such a great lineup of trial lawyers coming, like Raleigh's coming, Mitnick's coming, Panish is coming, like Joe Freed, Satch Oliver. Like there are just so many great people coming that I am really stoked about it. And like, I think it could be the greatest assess, a light array of trial talent that, especially in a smaller conference too, because it, it's kind of a smaller hotel, but it has a large exhibits or like kind of a, like the speaking spaces. So- after the hotel sold out, because there's like 220 rooms and we have the entire hotel. So everybody at the hotel will be with us. But then there's some really nice hotels next door, the Hyatt and the Hilton. So I'm super stoked about this. Well, make sure I get the link so I can register for the hotel. Well, I'm going to send it to you in a minute, everything. But I don't know how much you've thought about it. What are you going to be teaching at Huntington Beach? What I'd like to do is empower people in this discovery phase to stand up to the nonsense empower them to strategize on how to get the evidence and how to put a stop to the nonsense that you're getting from these junior partners who just obstruct everything and how to use this motion practice, not as this horrible thing to go through, but as a way to start the persuasion practice with the judge 
to show them that you're the grown up, that you're the professional, that you're trying to do everything on the high ground, and you know what you're doing. And to do that, you got to know the rules of engagement. And then you got to think through this psychology, how are you going to communicate with the judge? You got to communicate with the judge just as much as you got to communicate with the jury, how to communicate them to show them that you're not one of these children coming in here trying to have a sandbox fight. And so I'm going to be talking about the rules. I'm going to be talking about how to do the analysis. And I'm going to talk about what can be done to do this without raising the blood pressure, without getting angry, without yelling at each other, but rather saying, here are the rules, here's the evidence, you tell me if I got these cases wrong, and give me the cases and we'll talk about them. And if we can't work it out, we'll just let someone else decide. You know, none of this, I'm going to bring a motion. No, so let's try to work it out. And if we can't, Let's get it down to what the real issues are, and we'll let someone else decide. And let me tell you, it's a lot more fun practicing law to do that, particularly if you use some of these tools that you can take a 40-hour project and cut it to three hours. That sounds more doable. Three over 40. I'm with you. Yeah. Because that shit does not sound fun to me. I mean, I've never engaged in it too much because I got started on this different path. So learning all this stuff directly but I'm going to be learning indirectly. And this is all critical stuff. So I'm psyched about it. But you know the psychology as well as anybody I've ever met, Dan. Come on. No. It's all about the connection, though. I mean, I've learned that from you. The connection is important. I've been really blessed to be sitting throughout the pandemic. I got to meet so many great trial lawyers. Like maybe our paths had crossed before the pandemic, but we didn't know each other. And just like so many great trial lawyers and get them to kind of mentor me and mentor the country simultaneously in this journey, because it's just such a complex, because I've done a lot of podcasts and I was asked, what do you think a person needs to do to become great? And since there's no consensus, it makes it really tough. You want to become a great baseball player? Well, you start practicing fielding ground balls or even golf's a better example. You know, you'll become good at golf. You get a coach. They teach you how to hold a club. They teach you how to stand. They teach you the proper way to swing. And it's universally agreed upon how to do these things. With trial lawyering, there's no universal agreement because it's such a human experience. There's just so much involved in it. And obviously it always has to be adjusted to your own humanity. Because if it's not, it ain't gonna come out authentically or whatever you call it to get the connection. And then it's, then you're screwed. That's the magic word. I think authenticity is the most important thing. I mean, it's like, you look at the great lawyers, they're not formologists, they're not checklist people, they're authentic. They believe in the case which I think I'm going to put on my list of top characteristics now, because authenticity is the number one piece of connection that all of a sudden they don't think you're a phony. They say, this is like a real person with really good ideas and I can trust he or she. So you just hit the word that's going on to my list now. Well, I think authenticity is critical, but I think authenticity is a result of doing a lot of other things because it's a result of honestly being calm and confident. When you know all the rules, when you stand up and you feel people are connecting, you feel like they like you, when they're smiling at you, they have warmth towards you, and you feel like you're part of them, not just a trained, whatever, monkey jumping around in front of them for their entertainment, where it's like you're leading the group. It's a result of 
calmness, a result of connection, a result of confidence. Right. Because when you're all those things, then you're authentic and then you're going to connect with people and then you can lead them through this journey called a trial. So, because people talk about authenticity, like there's some programs like, oh, it's all about authenticity, but they don't really give you the skills to keep you of a calm, you know what I mean? So that you get confidence and they just say, hey, whatever you're doing is great until you get into a courtroom and then they start punching you in the face and kick you in the head. And now you're like, look like you just went through you know, a traumatic experience and you can't connect at all. That's why I'm big on the rules. So now they can protect you. And if you're curious and you really want to know, not like, okay, <laughs> next number one, okay. check. I'm going to be curious. No, you're really curious and you authentically want to understand what's going on. And then once you gather the evidence and you want to share that story, then of course you need to use storytelling techniques and sequencing, but it's all about how you present that evidence. That's a whole other talk that we could talk about that I learned from the book Legal Blame by Neil Feigenson on how people process information. And the sequencing of information is critical in trying to connect with people. If you're not authentic, then it's not going to work. But the sequencing is partly saying, I understand who these people are. I understand that there's a process that they're going to go through to answer questions. And it's going to be about you know, responding to them. It's like I've learned some stuff from Joshua Carton about opening statements. And he's taken me through these fabulous drills that the story is not about what I want to tell. It's about what they want to hear. And that's a powerful technique. Well, maybe you'll expand upon this in Huntington Beach after we go through, you know what I mean, the discovery. Sure. The discovery tools. Well, Mark, I appreciate you taking the time this morning. And, oh, one last thing, though. How's your surfing coming along? Because I know you just started surfing at 60, and I tried to do it at about 45. And I took, At 62, I did a couple years of learning how to surf in Nosara. I finally, after two years, got on the big wave and rode it a half a dozen times. Big, you know, it's like six, seven feet. Yeah. But let me tell you, that's a hard sport physically. <laughs> At age 70. Just getting past the wave, just paddling your way out. Because I went to Costa Rica and I tried to learn. I was taking lessons and man, I'm like, this is a whole new level of fitness. Now I know why those surfers are so jacked because just getting out there. Yeah. It's getting out there and then sitting out there paddling for half an hour. So I'm still salsa dancing, but I've given up on surfing. I've replaced it with cycling. And so my trip, I just came back from cycling in Sicily. And I can do that at my age. Would you highly recommend it? Cycling? Yeah. Absolutely. You know what you need to do? This is what we should plan a European CLE cycling trip. Just do like two hours of discussion in the morning, and then we go cycling after that. But we don't go too far, so nobody has to be like your level. Of... That would be fun. That would be fun. And social and tax deductible. Everybody like social combined with tax deductible and learning, and cool trips to cool places. There you go. And then you already got your Sicily routine going, so you just remap the whole thing. I love it. This is perfect. Okay, we'll talk about this at Huntington Beach. All right, Mark. Well, thanks for coming. All right. You have a great day, and take care. I'll see you soon. I'm going to finish off like I always finish off. Oh, got it.
Thank you for having me, Dan. This has been fun. Thanks, Mark. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Ready to train with the Titans and set records with your verdicts? Register for our live conferences and boot camps at triallawyersuniversity.com. Start getting your reps in before the big event by going to tluondemand.com to gain instant access to live lectures, case analysis, and skills training videos from the trial lawyer champions you love and respect, as well as pleadings, transcripts, PowerPoints, and notes for a roadmap to victory. Join the group that continues to get extraordinary results. Trial Lawyers University. Produced and powered by LawPods.